useful um, structures that the Buddha presented as ways in his teaching was the, called the five aggregates so these is just a, a, the main structure like a teaching structure so it's a particular way of, of categorizing experience and so very simply rupa form <clears throat> which means any kind of form, generally applied to visual form, but it can also mean mental form, the sense of something, an object presenting itself, you know, so that we see, hear, touch, it can be kind of something is there, form, solid, mobile, hot, cold, vibrant, you know, so forms happening all the time for us, subtle and gross, physical forms, mm. animate and inanimate. So you just, uh, and you're always applying mindfulness and investigation, which just means you basically know form is a form, shape to it, solidity to it, movement. And that's what you know. The rest of it you can imagine and infer. Form is delightful, form is ugly, form is exciting, form is boring. My form, your form. You know, what it could be, what it should be. But what you really know is form is form. And the nature of any form is it's subject to change. You know, just watch them. Uh, you can get statues seem pretty stable, but if you notice the different lights on even statues, gives them a different form. So we're not talking purely about an objective reality, but a subjective experience of it. What actually happens? We experience things in terms of their form. Mm. More evocative than that, or what it's created around form, as we're conscious of it, is um, kind of feeling, feeling pleasant, unpleasant. Sometimes this is very, this is very obvious. Sometimes it's very obvious. Attractive, delightful, horrifying. Terrible. But sometimes, a lot of time, it can be just kind of quite things that you, you know, that you don't really find you want to look at for a long time. You just glance over them at these walls. They're not unpleasant, they just, you know, you look at a wall. So you could say it's not a pleasant, after a while, the degree of agreeableness about that changes. Sometimes it's very agreeable to have something so neutral, calming quality to it. But if you're looking for something interesting on this wall, you won't get much out of it. So the quality of agreeableness or disagreeable changes. And naturally we want the agreeable. So you, you know, neutrality can sometimes change from being neutral to being disagreeable because we want something that's more stimulating or interesting. Feeling, therefore, is changeable. It's very subjective. It's not that things actually are pleasant or unpleasant. We find them so. And one of the major ways in which we uh, do our finding is through perception, which is another one of these aggregates, a third of them. 
which means we have a particular um, impression, stored up memory, you could say, categories. We find cats agreeable or disagreeable. Mm. Find particular sounds agreeable or disagreeable. Things remind you of things. They, you know, they're classified, they're categorized. Very strong things with food. You know, people dislike particular flavors or really fond of particular flavors. And it becomes very obvious when you go to other countries where they like their food rather differently. You know, using salty or peppery chilies, things like that. Things that we find difficult to eat. You know, perception is not agreeable. So perceptions how things are classified. I mean, perception and feeling go together. They mix with each other. You perceive something. And of course, it goes along with, uh, you know, perceptions of people, you know, beautiful person. She looks really attractive. You know, but if you look at fashions, you know, how that changes, get uh, these very emaciated models with purple cheeks or black rings around their eyes and that can be seen as uh, interesting, exciting, attractive, evocative or, you know, that then you look at particularly fashions, you look at, uh, you know, models 40 years ago, it looks really strange to what was obviously higher fashion then. Mm. So it's very uh, perceptions cultural things, social-cultural things. When you start to contemplate these, just that's a perception. The weather, is it pleasant or unpleasant? Somebody's saying, oh, somebody's living in Los Angeles, saying how nice it was, it was raining there. How pleasant it was to be cool and raining, clean, you know, takes the dryness out of the air and cleans the streets and, you know, things like that, oh, wonderful. Whereas in England, <laughs> cool and rainy, it's like, <laughs> oh God. You yearn for sun and warmth and uh, those sorts of things, dry. England's so wet, so damp, the air is moist all the time, so you find yourself craving dryness and heat in the wintertime. Uh, <laughs> it's the idea of going somewhere it's cool and damp. <laughs> even, uh, we found even like epithets of, of um, meditation, you know, like often in Asian, Asian tradition, talk about the lovely cooling effect on the mind of meditation, which sort of works in the West. But you also really want the warming quality, you feel, and warm-hearted is very important. Cool head, warm heart. Actually, what's the warm about it, you know? It's a perception, isn't it? Find the idea of that attractive. Yeah. So these things are quite meaningful to us, but they they are what they are. You know, you look outside at grey, rain, wind, trees blowing around, and you get that feeling of oh dear, <laughs> perception. But it is what it is. It's not. It's not deciding to be miserable. It's not saying let's make all these human beings miserable. It's just doing what it does, being that way, and we can take it that way. You also take it as uh, kind of uh, calming because it it tends to cause you know you don't feel like running around you know jumping up and down and frolicking the grass when it's like this you just want to sit down somewhere and quiet down <laughs> so it's quite we have these meditation treats in the winter time because it has that effect on the mind you just want to go in. <laughs> uh. The big, then you have sankara, which means something like uh, activities, activities that become formations. 
there's really two two senses to it these particular mental activities that as they get established tend to become fixed habits so then they become formations you know they become patterns and programs yeah. so particularly the, the what we call the mental ones the emotional ones you get particular programmed activity about you know, feeling jealous or feeling left out or feeling being a generous person in particular programming. You know, and that also what, what triggers these? Uh, longing to be noticed or to be received with affection or a wish to be busy doing things and achieving things. So we have different all these programs running all the time. You start to just notice that's that's a program. These are very significant because when these these uh, programs, these activities, you, you see a lot of your of the what's called karma or the habits that we've laid down or become laid down. And activities are the things that really get us going. You know, feelings of love and hate, aversion, fear, resentment, passions, depression, anxiety. These are the visa programs, these are activities the mind does. And it can kill you. You know. People die of depression, kill themselves, you know. Or they kill others, get very angry. So they're deadly things, these activities. They can also be sources of incredible joy and nobility, skillful, you know, generosity and compassion. So these are the make or break, really, of the whole thing. And these are the ones that you put most attention into because these are the things that have such powerful effects for one's welfare and the welfare of others. And, of course, these are the ones you can actually have some say in changing them. First, you've actually got to know what, what's running. This is why when we meditate, uh, now, you know, our, our intentions are to stabilize, calm the mind, and then really see what's, what's the running, you know, when there's not a lot going on to, to trigger things off. There's not much happening. You close your eyes and you sit quietly, particularly on a retreat. You start to see the kind of restless pushing for something to have, something to do, something to be. Or you start churning through the memories and the difficult things and the joyful things and the happy things and the miserable things. It's kind of continual activation of the mind. And you start to get a sense that even when the, you know, Busyness is quite happy in a way, you know. It's sort of stressful because it's just incessant. <laughs> you know, it's always going on about something or the other. Needing food, needing to be fed with things to do, with new ideas, with this, that, and the other. So. But then being averse to and angry about all that, upset about that, is just another activity. So in this, one of the functions of meditation in this practice of mindfulness and awareness is just holding that, being aware of the activity as an activity and not adding more to it. If you add anything to it, you just want to add things like calm, goodwill, restraint, you know, cooling, steadying, simplifying, you know, intentions towards that. Lastly, is consciousness, which is the um, that which makes things present for you. It's like a messenger rushes out through the eyes, picks up something, and brings it back in. Brings it back in through perception and feeling. And the rushing out is another activity. So consciousness is wired up to activities, and it it reports things in terms of perceptions, feelings, to the mind. That's what it does. It's like it's sent out on a quest. What's that about? Is it interesting? Is it worthwhile? Is it painful? Is it, you know, 
that's the quest. It reaches out and then it comes back in. So oh, that was reminds me of that. It feels like it could be one of those. Wouldn't bother to do that. You know? So you can observe these or you contemplate these occurring all the time. These five aggregates. Rupa, something is brought back in terms of a form. There's a perception of it. It's remembered as something. It's, it's designated as something. It has a particular feeling to it. You know? So, you know, you walk through a door, you touch the door handle, and that touch tells you that's metal. And uh, you know what to do with it. You turn it. Because you know it, you have a perception of it. You can feel the feeling is maybe mildly agreeable. And it sets up this response. Feeling, perception, activity, and so on. It's like that going on all the time. And what you do through that, through the process of being mindful of these, is you, you start to eliminate the, the, the actions that are, that are just unnecessary. Doubt, <coughs> planning. <coughs> and you, which ones are, and the ones that are not unnecessary are uh, accompanied by unhelpful qualities like worry, doubt, anger, passion, craving. So you start to notice these. And this is why it's so important to contemplate you know, every what we're doing all the time. And uh, how these this structure, these five aggregates, is useful because it's, it, it straddles the daily life and the meditation exercises. It covers all of it. So you can do it with great... Um, clarity when you're meditating but then you can also take that insight that realization into what you're doing particularly in terms of your thinking processes when we think about how we think do we think carefully clearly you think carefully clearly with a sense of purpose it's going to have a big effect on the content and the energy of the mind, the thinking mind, which is a major uh, topic for people. You know, don't think things through fully. So we sort of babble, blurb, fumble, fluster. It comes out in the way we speak is like that, the way we think is like that. So really training the... uh, the mind in this way. Think clearly. Think clearly, realize that some things are not worth thinking about. You know, some things, you know, it's not they're bad things, they're just nothing, you know, they're pointless right now. You know, you can... You know, so you start to train yourself to think what you want to think, put your mind to it, think it clearly, you can, can, then you can notice the degrees of what's present with that. Whether we're upset, or whether we are eager, whether we are anticipating something, whether we're doubtful, wavering, and you start to just keep checking that, checking that, checking that, until it becomes clearer. So that uh, you know, one of the important skills to develop as a contemplative, is to learn how to think clearly. Because then, you know, your mental content's going to be a lot clearer. And the way of holding things is going to be a lot steadier. You learn a lot about how, how to hold a thought, how to frame it, thinking process, and how to put it, put it aside. You know, so you get to the end of the thought and just pause. You know? You know, almost like take an out breath. Stop. Check it. And you've got to do this, it's not like training a wild horse. You've got to do it many times, just tugging it back, steadying it, calming it, patting it, exercising it, go this way, go that way. But it has a, a beneficial effect. And then you don't fill your mind up 
with all sorts of stuff that's just loose ends, dither, you know, unpleasant perceptions of other people that you continually chew over and add more to, unpleasant perceptions of yourself that you chew over and add more to. And you get that sense of really holding something clearly and then putting it aside, putting it down. Finished. It's really helpful because uh, then, you know, you're doing something, because we have to think a lot of the time. If you do it carefully and skillfully, it means you're, you know, you're continually sort of setting yourself up correctly for the meditation, for calming. Mm-hmm. So it's like something we do all the time, every day, and you make a skill out of it. It's going to have these results in your meditation. And in your meditation, you develop that act of for framing a concept just by deliberately pointing to a sensation in your body or in your breathing or a thought of goodwill and you hold it steadily. What actually is that? It's Vitaka pointing, holding it, evaluating it, being clear about that. So it's not fuzzy and slippery and, and uh, you're not clear about what you're doing. So you don't get this sense of contaminating everything with doubt, worry, agitation, bad moods. Mm-hmm. So particularly a skill is turning the mind to a, to a skillful thought, a thought of loving kindness, thought of compassion mm-hmm. towards yourself or towards others. So just particularly recollections, developing skillful thoughts. Sometimes, you know, when you haven't got anything to do or you've, you know, your body's tired or, you know, just getting this sense of sitting in a car, going somewhere, you could kind of natural way or you could just develop skillful thought, recollections. And even say, these are things you can do. The amount of stuff we do which is just about filling in, filling in the spaces read something, listen to something, chew something. So when you really get an understanding of this, uh, how are you looking for not acres of time, not hours of it, like, but these two minutes here, just chipping away the, the seconds, the minutes, that we otherwise let the mind just kind of bang around like a door in the wind. You want to keep it either open, closed, know what you're doing, what's going, what's going through that door. You know, because what goes through that door counts and how it goes through the door counts. If it just comes banging in and crashing around or if you deliberately open the door, let it in, close the door, you know. <laughs> all that, all that has effects. So you're training, training the mind in this way. This is all about training these these activities in terms of things like generosity, patience, energy. You know? Training yourself to persistently hold something steadily, stay on track with something, training the mind to concentrate, stay with it, don't, you know, stay with an idea or a thought until you've really finished it put it away and watch it end. Yeah? So this helps to change the, the agitation or the restlessness of the mind or the kind of havering. And building that up, certainly in, in the training that we undertake in the monastery, the whole theme of it is to, you know, whatever you do, you pick it up, check out whether it's yours it's suitable, useful, check it out, pick it up, use it skillfully, finish with it, put it away, complete it, whether it's a mop, you know, <laughs> or whether it's a book. Things aren't just left, you know, I won't finish with that, dump it, leave it somewhere else. You tidy it up. So you're training particular mental activities, way we 
not just the topics, but the way we handle things. And it pays off. As the particular structures of the mind get much clearer. Mm. Now, activities themselves, there are three basic activities, and perhaps the most important one is intention. Which is the, if you say, why, or, or why we do things, or what's actually driving the mind at any time. So this is something to be very clear about because this is the source of karma, causality, which will give rise to particular effects. And there's really nothing much else than that. You know, we tend to believe in a world of definite things, a definite future, a definite past, definite people, definite objects, a definite self, there, actually none of this is definite at all. Absolutely none of it is definite, fixed, lasting at all. <laughs> you know? And so the future, there is no future. That's not poetic. <laughs> That's not despairing. And there's no future in this. But it's just that there is no future. Ask the people who booked their airplane tickets during the volcanic eruptions, you know, what happened to to their flight home that was definitely all laid on, planned, booked, paid for, signed, sealed and delivered, and then this volcano blows up in Iceland and it don't take off. What happened to that future? What happened to the you know same thing happened last winter, didn't it? In December, the planes didn't take off because of the snow. What happened to that future? Well, so angry. Because it was there. You know, I'd booked it. I paid my money. I was going to home to see my aunt. And there it was. I was stuck, stranded. Yeah. Yet, things that seem so predictable. His, uh, you know, sports matches, you know, his sports reports, so and so. Oh, there, you know, this team's going to totally wipe this other team out, you know. So it starts off, and then Team B, who are going to get wiped out, suddenly knock three goals in. They're on a winner, fantastic. They're going to win, and then suddenly Team A, who are getting slaughtered, knock four goals in. <laughs> it just changes. All the time, you know, who's going to win? Who's going to lose? It just continually, there isn't, there isn't a future. But all the time we're projecting it and imagining it. Yeah. And it's not just about, you know, dying, but that every day nothing happens exactly as you planned it. And sometimes it's radically different from how you planned it. And even if one isn't actually inking in, defining the future, there is that very strong trajectory to make to do something now so that in the future there will be. A very strong trajectory. So it keeps us active. And to a certain extent we use that in meditation. You you can lay down particular um, energies if practices that will give rise to good effects in the future. But the main thing that they give rise to is the clarity to see that there isn't one, a future. <laughs> and you start to see what creates them, the, the, the pushing the quality. Certainly we see what we carry with us into, you know, creates our future. We start to dread the future. Uh, great expectations for it, plans for it. So that future acts as a as a kind of a mirage in the mind, a horizon that you never get to, and yet it's a readout of the state of your intentions in the present, which is what you can know. The uncertainty, the expectation, will I get, can I make it, does this happen? Yeah. 
and how to handle that by knowing it for what it is. So really all we're being asked to do is not even to you know, deny these, but to notice this con- relative conventional reality of things like future, past, which has no substantial existence and yet very much the world in which we operate, just to really notice it for what it is and not to get dominated by it. Feel the currents in there. So intention is so important. Impatience. Because all you have now in terms of what you can do and rely upon is intention. You can't guarantee what will happen in the future, but you can know right now your mind is resting, is steady in good intention, in clarity, in kindness, in observation, in, you know, this is what we can know. We can do this. What other people will say about us, what we can we can't predict that. Whether it's right or wrong, what other people, you can't predict that. You can't but you can just get clearer and steadier about your intention. And it's very important to, to get hold of that because most everything uh, that we put our minds to tends to take, take us away from that focus. We lean upon uh, secondary learning. Yeah. Tell me who I am because it says this in the book. Tell me who I am because somebody else says I'm like this. What do you know? What you can know is that if you're looking for the messages of who you are or how you're doing from somewhere else, you're going to be confused. You can know intention. That's a very important thing that's going along with us all the time. The other activities are attention and contact. Attention is the thing that frames things up. You know, so if we can give attention to a book, picture, piece of music, breathing in and out, to an idea, to a process, to a project, to a concept. We can give attention to, to many, many things. Frame, it frames it up for us. And what we give attention to then saturates our mind with what it contains. So it's a very powerful activity, isn't it? You know, if you give your attention to, say, economics, then you see the world through that lens you give your attention to the environment, you see the world through that lens. Give your attention to particular religious or political ideologies you see through that lens. It saturates your mind with that with what that particular frame can provide you with. So it's it's something to be aware of and realise that all attention is partial. No such thing as it never covers the universe. You only, can only see through it through a slot. Attention is a very small amount of what's potentially there, like about one or two percent. So, at any given moment, most of what you can be aware of is you're not attending to. You're not attending to your heartbeat. You're not attending to your memories of five years ago. You're not attending. All the potentially you could. But you can't, you know, you could attend to any one of them, you can't attend to the whole lot of them. So your basically your mind, attention is both basically about not attending to things. It's kind of cuts out most things, so you focus on one thing. So it's important to, to get that because uh, you can find your attention locked on the things that cause you misery. And in that, that saturates the mind and you can't see outside it. 
So, you know, big problem for people is their attention is captured by things that cause them uh, longing, craving, uh, doubt, worry, fear. So the, the the mind gets quite poisoned, intoxicated by that. And because uh, what you attend to, frame it up, it's true, relatively true, but it's only ever relatively true. Remember, it's like a few, one, two, three percent of what's possible. You don't actually have to live in that corner of the universe if you... It's not a matter of denial because it's like we're going to, you know, if, if you're doing it consciously, saying, you're, you know, you're, so you're not kind of shunning things from a sense of naivety or pretense, but just this, uh, what is useful to give your attention to and how much. And just getting this skill together. Realize one does have a choice as to what one dwells in. And so, particularly for a, a you know a contemplative or a meditator, a lot of their you know a good amount of attention is going to be what's happening in my, my mental processes as we come into contact with things, as we touch things, as we see things, as we hear things, as we remember things, as we keep that. This is where this other quality or activity of contact occurs. Contact is the thing that places something. Yeah. So attention, you see, you can be sitting watching a television program and your attention is so into that that you don't notice that you're hungry. You haven't eaten for 15 hours because you're so absorbed. Or you don't notice your leg's gone to sleep. It's gone numb. It's happened, but you haven't given it. Because your attention was somewhere else, it didn't happen, in a way. <laughs> that's, what, that's how attention is. Contact means you can, you know, see someone. Say see someone. You know, definitely can see them. The visual image is coming through the eyes. The contact is there. But, um, you know, there's a... A school friend you haven't seen for 15 years, you don't recognize them. So your contact is, oh, man, person, that's it. Yeah. A contact is associated with perception and feeling. So it's the thing that places something. Oh, that's, that's James. Oh, that's <coughs> Sally. Oh, wow. Contact is the thing that places it there. If it doesn't place it there, you don't get the same effect. Hmm? If it doesn't, this activity of contact is a thing that says, puts it in that particular place, in your memory, in your perception aggregate. That's one of those. And you go, oh yeah, I got it. Wow, look at that, you know. When I was in Australia, a few years ago, I was doing a long retreat in Australia, in Western Australia. And, uh, in a little kutia hut in, uh, out in the outback. And uh, so I was on my own for three and a half months in this kuti. And uh, so I taken there, sat in this hut, nothing going on, meditating. Suddenly the evening, it's kind of womp, womp. Looked out the window and there's these creatures. And it's so strange because my contact really kind of some kind of strange bird. It was kangaroos. Now I've seen pictures of kangaroos, but I've never seen. I might, might have seen them as in the zoo, but I hadn't seen any. I wasn't familiar with them. I know what a kangaroo is, but I see these creatures moving around because my mind was particularly stilled. Like it, it, I could almost see it fumbling. The immediate impression was dinosaur. <laughs> you know, and then bird. These were split-second things, it, you know, before it got that sense of, oh, it's one of those, you know. It was not, not familiar enough. 
the way they moved and uh, these great creatures. And it, of course, it wasn't certain whether this was something to be frightened of because they're quite large or just a peaceful herbivore or whatever it is, you know. So strange, alien, very alien, not a familiar perception. So the contact with that wasn't, you know, was went to somewhere it wasn't associated. Hmm? Sometimes you, you know, you might experience that you go to another country and you see people speaking. Is he angry? You listen to Thai, for example. Thai has got a lot of. Um, it's a tonal language, which means they have um, a very, very clear system of tones. There's a high tone, a low tone, a falling tone, a rising tone, and a level tone, these tones. Now, when we hear the word rising, to us, that's a question. How are you? Are you all right? That's a question. To Thai, it's not a question. It's the rising tone. It's nothing to do with questioning. If you hear a high tone, like, huh? To us, it's an exclamation. To us, it's not an exclamation. It's just the sound. It's just the sound. But when you hear it, you think, well, they're going to be really angry. Asking lots of questions. <laughs> they're not angry. They're really talking about the price of milk or something like that. But it sounds like they're asking questions because they've got these rising tones in the in the and, and falling tones. Falling tone to us is disappointment. Oh, so they're disappointed, angry, and asking questions all the time. And they're just talking about you know the price of bread. Or it's not like that at all. But the, your contact, you know, it places it in that. That's what we know it as. That sound means a question. My. It doesn't. Why? Hmm. So you get a strange kind of shimmer of you you definitely hear something. It's not that you're not having contact, but it doesn't the activity doesn't know where to put it. We used to uh when I was a student, sometimes these people play tricks and they take um, get food dye, so you get some tea and you pour Blue, tasteless food dye. Doesn't taste of anything. Blue or purple into the tea. And you pick up this purple drink and you'd be expecting black currant, grape juice, you're expecting a fruit juice. You wouldn't think it, you just look at it and say, Oh, pick it up. And, and the the sunya, the perception you'd go, oh, fruit juice. And you'd God, this is awful. What's this? And it wasn't awful, it was just tea. But the, 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 the jarring between the perception of some kind of fruit juice and its actual flavour was so such a jar, such a jarring effect that you, it's, kind of, it's horrible. No, it's not. It's tea. <laughs> you know, which we associate with the milk tea. You know, there's a particular flavour to it. So you see how uh, contact, its activity, you almost sense it, trying to place this colour drink into somewhere and finding it didn't fit there that's contact it's it's not the just the pure something touching something it's the activity of the mind or system, mental perception system placing something in you what we our take on things you might say yeah is he a friendly person? Is that expression friendly, calm? You know, what does it mean? You see, is she being aggressive or just happy or what? You know. So these are, these are what's going on, and you want to <clears throat> just notice what your what your mind is doing where it's putting things. Yes. Because what you begin to recognize is it's not sure. What it tells you really is like uh, what you're, what you're um, programmed. Like programmed to see uh, purple as fruit juice. 
It's not necessarily fruit juice. Hmm? Could be tea. That's just the beginning of it. Sometimes when we're practicing mindfulness of breathing, we expect the breathing to be a certain thing because we've got this idea, you know, you go to school, breathing, and a little drawing of a human body, a nose, a couple of sacs inside their chest, and there's this stuff, this is breath. So you get this perception of breathing. So we have that idea. And then, but when you meditate, that doesn't really work. <clears throat> Works perhaps first for a little while, but after a while, when your mind calms down, then that experience doesn't fit anymore. Doesn't go anywhere. Particularly, it becomes uh, very difficult to understand the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of breathing through that map alone. He talks about sensing the entire body. You know, well, wouldn't it? Nose, lungs. What's this got to do with your ears and your feet? Because we have an expectation of uh, what it should be. We're trying to experience something that isn't happening. So, one of the trainings of the contact is to, you know, just how is it? Not how it, what it reminds you of, what's it feel like, really how is it? Yeah. So that, that that activity is being just checked and held. Just, just get it to not, you know, to be clear. And, there's a, uh, and the beauty of these is when you start to work on these three activities, intention, attention and contact, it gets a lot clearer. The world gets a lot simpler because they're not continually going along these habitual pathways of, of our uh, habitual intentions, where our attention has got snagged on particular things we always look for or look after or tend to, particular worries, concerns, obsessions. You know, <clears throat> sit down and plug in our worry, because <clears throat> that's kind of what we got used to doing. Or our feeling of inadequacy, plug that one in. You're always used to framing that one up as the things you can't do, haven't done, got got done, other people have got done, you don't do, you don't make it. (coughs) Well, I regret, you know, which I had have done. If only I'd done this 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 3 years ago. 25 years ago, so we can plug that one in, give that some more air time, more needle time. Or our kind of fantasies, what we want to, the good time we're going to have, or should have, or planning for. So you you start to check these, these compulsive habits. So that's one thing, you start to actually produce uh, intentions, attentions, and, co- and contact. They're just clear, simple, and gives you a sense of calm, steadiness, and attend to things that are for one's welfare. You, begin, you have to know for yourself what those are. To learn it, really. Because it's not particular things that we can generalize around, but how they're affecting. If it's causing you to flare up with uh, passion or with aversion, or then this isn't worth it. Not fit for attention. It's not doing you any good. And as but once one gets more skillful, you can start to hold even difficult topics. Clearer, yeah. like conflict, yeah. where you you know just to hold it clearly. This is conflict. It's like this now. We don't know what results are supposed to be. Who's right? Who's wrong? We just know that it's like this, and we're going to act clearly, without violence, and without uh, intimidation, and without you know 
years. So you start to cultivate your mind like that. First, sometimes it's very difficult to contact, you know, to bring attention to difficult things without just going into one of the, these sort of programs of, of righteousness or despair or depression or blaming or feeling inadequate. So you just got to train to stop doing that. We tend to something clearly as it is. So what this does over, over in the long run, through skillful intention, skillful activities, it, it, it leaves a lot of space in the mind. Because all that texture of regret and comparisons and worry and should-be's and all that, when that you've trained yourself not to keep feeding this virtual reality of, you know, it starts, just by not feeding, it starts to die out. It starts to fade out. And there's something about that, terribly pragmatic, yeah. It's just that if you don't keep going down those pathways, eventually that territory, you're not continually going into it all the time. It's just as simple as that. Sometimes meditation is nothing more than just plugging away, <laughs> you know, day in, day out, hour after hour, you know, day, year after year, just plugging away, lessening the time you spend in the desert, in, in the mess. <laughs> you know, knowing that, because sometimes we just go into the, this, it's like habit. And then you can get angry about it and disappointed. That's making more of it. You just spend less time doing that. It's just as simple as that. And it has good effects. It fades out. It's even uh, apparently in the structure of the brain that uh, the various, I don't know, trillions of connections there. Must be, you know, quadzillions of connections that these neurons and synapses can can link up in all kinds of ways and it certainly if you particularly there's a particular pathways will produce things like the fear pathways or the defense pathways or the the appetite pathways or the compassion pathways and it's just basically if you keep sending your juice down the right pathways that bit of your brain gets bigger and more juicy and more energized and the, the 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 rotten stuff. The less you put your energy into that, it begins to literally die out. It's almost like you forget you don't know how to, doesn't know how to go there anymore. Yeah. Which is which is just the kind of strategy, really, you know. So I've found over. Certainly, years of living in monasteries, you realise that the the excitement uh, neurons have got distinctly starved. <laughs> My exciting events are funerals. <laughs> funerals are maybe an alms giving ceremony. That's that's a real rave up an alms giving ceremony. You know, that's about as exciting as it's got. <laughs> And actually, that's quite fun. Those things quite quite <laughs> exciting. <laughs> yeah, you know, the mind gets quite a lot of reflection on it because a lot of time, it just just it's, you know, on one level, it's quite boring. But it's not even boring anymore. It's just what it is. It's plain. Like these, it's not, boring is kind of as a negativity. It's not boring. It's just empty. You know, it's just like that. It's just. Like this unfurnished hall, it's like that. You get to like it. You like it because you don't feel activated by it. And you like that because it's not negative activation like something wrong with furniture. Da, 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 da. It's just like, oh, it's something that isn't moving your mind around. Oh, it's steady. And then it's the training you can focus on that. There's, there's the space. That's what you really want. Because when the conditioned agents, these are the conditioners, activities are conditions, they, they determine the world. 
they frame it for us, they bring it to us, they describe it, they get us activated around it. When those conditions are held clearly, conditions get steadier, clearer, and also the unconditioned becomes more apparent. You see, there's the, the, the thing that you can't write your name on, the thing that's got no signature on it. It's got no quality to that. It's not boring, it's not exciting, it's not happy. It's just like a, you know. And you can know that, or you can, you can't name it, but you can have the experience of that and how the, the conditions the hell skillfully can be allowed to manifest and then pass away. You know, and these contemplate with this meditation retreat, you contemplate the endings of things, particularly is the easiest thing to contemplate. The ending of a thought, the ending of a sound, the ending of a conversation, the ending of a piece of work, the ending of a meditation session, just that where did that go? Where did it go? Yeah. And something he wants to run after it, saying, well, that was a good one or a bad one, I'm going to do, but just let it go. Yeah. You know? I was allowing, looking for that way that conditions unravel, leading to this. And you're not in a hurry to put something else in there. Because that, in a way, we've started to change our affiliations. You realize that conditioned is interesting, good, bad, wrong, right, but it's never enough. It's never completed. It's never satisfied. It's never certain. It's never exactly right. So, you know, you lost the sense of nipita, means we're no longer so motivated by conditions, by the conditioned, by the activated, because it doesn't go anywhere, really. It doesn't arrive at a conclusion, at a finality, at a, that's exactly there. It just arrives at the next place where you think, well, yeah, but we remember, compare it with that, it could be like that, and means we'll do more of that and it goes like that but letting things just go sometimes it's you know we'd like to do that but there's a the hook the reflex is too strong as soon as something finishes the next thing jumps up but that's that's the places where you're developing patience and equanimity trying to lengthen or rest the mind on the ceasing, the stopping, the passing. It doesn't have to, you know, encourages, it doesn't have to jump to the next, encouraging the don't know. And then what does arise, let's get very specific and clear about that. So we have a whole frame of practice that we work around. These five aggregates, uh, you know, the the uh, saying is uh, that if they're not treated carefully, they're like they're like as- assassins. They come in, and you think they're they come in saying, "I'll help you out," you know, "I'll tell you where things are," "I'll show you what to do." They come in, and you employ them, and then they stab you. <laughs> Feeling says. Right, have some painful feeling. <laughs> feeling comes in saying, oh, I'll be pleasant, I'll be pleasant. It comes in and it gives you pain. Body, you know, gives you hunger, tiredness, discomfort, pain. Yeah. Those activities, you know. So we think we're going to go somewhere and take you somewhere good. Do they? But it's also said that if they're handled wisely and skillfully, 
then these are a blessing and a joy. They take you to the unconditioned. You handle them skillfully. Here you are.